Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey Pediocast. With your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Cast. My name is Dimitri Filipovich, and joining me is a guest who, uh, over the past couple of years, it's been an annual tradition I have him on. We deep dive playoff series, and I'm glad we finally got to sneak one in this postseason as we're winding down here in the Stanley Cup final. It's my good buddy, Mike Johnson. Mike, what's going on, man? Uh, not too much. How are we doing? I'm in Edmonton. Nice. And I am in, I'm not in the bubble, but I'm in the arena. So I get a first hand view. I've not seen any games in person until the final here. So trying to absorb what it feels like to play games of this magnitude in arenas that are empty, but it's been, it's been, it's been interesting. It's been, uh, I give players a lot of credit because it's probably not been an easy couple months run here that they're coming to the end of. Yeah. You're, you're bubble adjacent. Well, I'm, I'm really curious for your take then because you obviously got to see the first couple rounds of the postseason at home watching on TV. And then now you're actually in, in, in the building. How, uh, what's the vibe like in terms of the differences between, um, the sort of the, broadcast presentation we're seeing as the final product on tv versus what you're actually hearing and seeing on the ice is it dramatically different or is it kind of a similar experience i think for the experience of the game the broadcast on television feels really quite normal i mean you get used to seeing the tarps over the 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 stands or the video boards that aren't usually there but you know the way they cut it the way they direct it, it 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 comes to look and sound quite normal um, you know, I don't, you know, in the big moments, it's some overtime games where, you know, if there are fans in the fans, it would have been something special. But um, for the most part, it felt normal. Even I'm in three games in here to the final and it still doesn't feel quite normal. Now, they do play a sort of ambient background din of crowd type noise throughout the entire game while the game is going on. So it's not dead silent where you can only hear, you know, sticks hitting the and skates and pucks banging around the ice and, and the voices as well. Um, I think the guy, whoever's in charge of the oohs and the ah buttons, he's actually quite good. <laughs> right. Or she, he or she, like they time it really well. Like, they don't oversell it for things that they shouldn't. Um, and there is a little bit more. I mean, we've kind of read some, some commentary on what guys are saying on the ice. And that. You can hear that a little bit, but not too much. It's just, 
it's just when they come out for warm up, I, I, I hearken back to like my days in Tampa and Phoenix when we play an exhibition game in Fort Myers and you go out for warm up and there'd be 200 people there. Like that's kind of what it feels like, except, you know, it's for the Stanley Cup. So that part is, is different, but um, it kind of sounds similar, hmm. except in the big moments when, when the crowd would take over. Right, yeah, especially I imagine with like big momentum changes or if a team is making a comeback and, and they were in front of their home crowd, right. it would kind of lead to a or different result. Yeah, doesn't play for seven months and walks off the bench and scores a goal. <laughs> I got, can you imagine if that would have happened in Tampa? It would have been glorious. It would have been a soundtrack and visuals forever for Steven Stamkos in Tampa. But, you know, it was a great moment, but it, it would have been it would have been something pretty special if it was in done in Tampa. Right. Yeah, to echo your point, though, just watching from, from at home, uh, there's certainly been moments where I've forgotten that we were playing bubble hockey during a pandemic and there was no one in the building. Like, you just kind of get the tunnel vision and you and you just, the sounds sound fairly similar. So I haven't experienced it really. But, okay, so MJ, uh, today we're going to talk about this series, stuff to watch, what we're seeing, what teams should be doing differently, adjustments. I love that we've already seen... Um, sort of that back and forth of Dallas coming out and winning game one and sort of stifling the Tampa Bay Lightning offense and then the Lightning making adjustments and now heading into game four, it's up to Dallas to see if they can kind of counter punch there. And, and there's no one in the entire world I'd rather be talking X's and O's and nerdy matchup details with you. So I'm really looking <laughs> forward to uh, to getting into this. So as the guest, I'll uh, I'll set the scene here for you and I'll just, I'll, I'll give you the floor. So what uh what's the sort of main uh, matchup or, you know, stylistic component or, um, you know, X's and O's thing you're seeing through these first three games that's really caught your eye and uh, how it impacts the sort of outcome of these games? So, well, there's, there's quite a few to digest, which is, which is fun, which is fun. But the main one that I've seen, and it kind of reared its ugliest head, certainly in the second period of game three, was that what Dallas has been really good at in the playoffs so far is that they will concede shots, but they will concede shots that they want you to take. And they will not give you the shots that you want to take. And they'll give you point shots, and they'll give you possession on the outside. You can ask Vegas. They piled up shot after shot after shot, but they never were able to create seams, uh, lateral passes, slot plays, and and, and give kind of Anton Hudobin, who's played really well, but give Hudobin and the defensive zone coverage system of Dallas much trouble. And I watched the first game in this series, and Tampa did the same. They didn't give them much trouble either, and I was very impressed on how organized Dallas was in their own end, how they could you know, withstand 30 seconds of pressure and not break down. Like It's easy to play defense when you get to your spot for 5 or 10 seconds, but once, once the puck starts moving around a little bit and you got to switch and you got to communicate and make some reads, that's when bad things happen to defensive teams. And... Dallas hasn't broken down very much at all in the playoffs. And what I see happening and where Dallas and I, I, you know, it was really bad in the second period, but you know, there's been moments in the game where, where it's happened where Dallas doesn't look as organized when Tampa starts to roll, especially the first line. Hmm. And I, I think their ability to maintain speed off cycle and broken play. So it's like, you know, defenders, they want to get your face in the glass. They start pushing and shoving and the puck's in your skates and you're kind of kicking along, but nothing really is happening, right? It's very stagnant. And when I watched Tampa play that first line, Kucherov and Point, lots quite strong at it as well, is that even when you think you have them, they kind of spin out of the defensive zone checking with pace. And so 
you don't really ever get to slow things down. I think also Tampa started to implement activating the defense. So the defense are sliding further down to the hash marks. They're going in behind the net. They're switching sides. They're going laterally. And it is causing Dallas problems in how to defend and especially defend that first line. And I, I didn't know if a team would be able to do that because Vegas is a good offensive team and they could not do that. But Tampa is, and that first line is almost doing it at will. And that, to me, is going to be a problem unless Dallas sorts it out. I don't know how you do. I mean, I can ask John Klingberg or Haskinen to you know, stick and pin Kucherov. Well, they're trying. Yeah. And they, they, they've been told that before. They know they're supposed to do that. But sometimes those players are just so good, it's hard to do. And I see that. I just When you watch it up top and you see it and the amount of motion and the continuous motion, and the fact that it's also interchangeable and it seems like Tampa is growing in confidence in what they're doing with the puck in the offensive zone, that is what Tampa is loving to do, and that's where Dallas has to figure out how do we counter that when that first line's on the ice where we're not putting ourselves uh, in spots where we're asking our goalie to make great saves. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head there. I think heading into the series, the thing that I was most interested to see how it would play out. I mean, with all these matchups, it's really kind of this chess match of who's going to dictate the terms of play and who's going to make the opposition uncomfortable and make them play something that they ideally wouldn't. And it was like this perfect matchup of Tampa Bay and their slot offense. I think they're the best team in the league at getting the puck into the middle of the ice, into those high danger areas, mm-hmm. versus the Stars, who essentially are probably the best team in the league at completely erasing that middle of the ice and forcing everything to the perimeter and everything to the point. It really was hockey's version of the kind of like this immovable force versus this unstoppable object. And just tracking it through the first three games, you know, in game one, which the Stars won and kind of held the, the Tampa Bay Lightning offense in check, even in that third period where everyone was citing the shot on goal disparity and how the entire yeah, game was matter. played, yeah. it, it was 22 shots on goal. There were only four high danger attempts there for Tampa Bay. And, and, mm-hmm. and Dallas has shown like they're comfortable playing that game, especially with the lead all night long. They don't mind it at all. And then you get the game two and three. So in game two, Tampa Bay is all the way up to 14 high danger attempts as opposed to just the six they had in game one. In game three, they only had eight total, but pretty much all of them were in that dominant second period and they sort of just were content playing out the clock in the third. But that's really been the story to me here where Tampa Bay has been able to break through and get into the sort of interior of that um, star's defensive shell. So you, you talk about a few things there in terms of what they've done and the adjustments they've made. Let's specifically key in on that because it's it's so fascinating to me because you know what Tampa Bay wants to do, right? Just watching Kucherov and I'm sure uh, seeing it from up above in the press box live is really hammers that point even more where he's just so good at kind of getting lost in the offensive zone and moving around. And then all of a sudden the puck comes to him and the, de- the defense doesn't really know where he's going to be at any given point. And that makes him so dangerous because it's so unpredictable. And it feels like that entire offense now has reached that highest level of, uh, of hockey chemistry where they're just all constantly moving and they're running this motion offense and they, they know where they're going to be, but the op- opposing defense has no idea where they're going to be. So it's, it's a pretty special thing to watch, but what, what's Tampa Bay doing to kind of break through and get into that shell? Is it as simple as sort of just playing their game and, and kind of maybe uh, shortening the passes and trying to make it easier and simplify it that way? Or, or uh, is there something else? Because it's it seems so obvious that it makes you wonder how the opponents before uh, this series weren't able to do it to Dallas, although obviously um, it's easier so than done in Tampa Bay has a special level of skill. Well, if we're talking about in the offensive zone, I think that line specifically we're focusing on, I think you have to appreciate that 
a couple of those plays. Plot's a really good player, and he's playing with a lot of confidence. But, you know, Point, I think, does so much for that offense because, you know, when you initially get the puck in the offensive zone, when teams have numbers back, there there's always going to be a moment of confrontation. And, and there's always going to be a moment where, you know, the defensive team usually wins those because it's harder to control the puck than kind of knock it loose and make something, you know, make nothing happen. And Braden Point wins so many of those moments of confrontation, mostly with his legs. He doesn't stick handle around guys, but he's very good at kind of getting hit and, and sliding by guys and, and kind of rolling off checks. And for the initial, you know, stick and pin, it kind of ends there. It rarely ends with Braden Point. So I think that's how he is different than, you know, Paul Stasny. You know, he can keep plays alive, even though he's being checked, and start the motion offense, if that's what we're going to call it. Dean mm-hmm. Smith would be happy right now. <laughs> You look at Kucherov, he's awesome to watch because, you know, he, he's, the, he's the king of getting lost. And you think, well, he's just floating around and skating around and, and not really engaged. But there's, a, there's, there's an offensive genius to what he's doing in that he's timing it so that he pops in the right spot at the right moment with a little space, with a little time, a little speed to create something different. Now, he has the great vision and the crazy uh, hands to pass it. And the one thing he does really well better than most and better than Max Pacioretty is when the puck comes to him in a tight spot, he's really good at one, two quick moves to create space. Now he doesn't mm. skate through checks like point does, but like, a, a, you know, an, an inside cut pivot off the wall that you're not expecting. Like where'd that come from? And all of a sudden he steps in the middle of the ice and got space or he knows the guy's coming. He gives you a shoulder fake one quick little toe drag and he's shaking him to give himself. He's better at that than most. And then Andre Palat, you know, he brings a weight to his game where when he bangs into you, it's heavy. When he, like, leans on your stick, it's heavy. And he forces a lot of loose pucks where those two guys can kind of swoop in and, and then start doing their stuff. Then you put in, so those guys are doing all that. And I think, you know, point skating ability while being checked and Kucherov's kind of vision and hands to never really ever get checked tightly are things that most teams don't have. That's why they're special players. And Dallas is struggling handling that. Then you put Sergachev, Hedman, even Kevin Shattenkirk, who play like they have free reign in the offensive zone. They got to go wherever they want because uh, they trust the guys who have the puck and they trust their ability to skate back and get back in plays. And all of a sudden, Dallas is, is on their heels where they haven't been um, in series past. Yeah, I mean, that movement in the offensive zone, I actually saw a really interesting uh, sort of charting of it. Sean Ferris on Twitter put together, he's kind of mapped out the uh, 5-1-5 shot assists for both teams and sort of where the pass is coming from and where it's setting it up. And, and for Tampa Bay, it's, it's so clear that you see in game one, Dallas was doing such a good job of basically making them go low to high and get it to the point, and they're going to live with that mm-hmm. all day. And, and then if you go to game two and three, game two especially, so many of those passes were all of a sudden going into the middle of the ice in high danger areas. And so I think not to discredit what Anton Hudobin has done this postseason because it's clearly amazing that he's been able to handle this workload in terms of the volume of games and also the quantity of shots and, and done it all in his sort of a dramatic flair that's been so fun to watch and he's so easy to root for. But behind this defense if you know where the shot's coming from and you can just focus Mm -hmm. on the shooter 
most NHL goalies will stop it. In this case, if all of a sudden there's a pass going laterally, as we saw, obviously, with that highlight reel uh, power play goal in game two, where Kucherov's bread and butter cross seemed to plat and he basically had all day to shoot it into an empty net, all of a sudden that mm-hmm. that is much more difficult. And so that's something that's really stuck out to me, too. And, it, and it's cool to see that the data actually backs it up where Tampa Bay has all of a sudden done such a good job of making both the defense and Hudobin move much more while getting the puck yeah. closer and closer to the net. Yeah, and I think, and you and like, you're absolutely correct. The numbers back up exactly what you're saying. You're, you're trying to appreciate like why in Game One, especially the low, like the the wingers for Dallas were so much better positioned to kind of pro, to prevent those 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 seam passes, those plays in the slot. And I think it's because um, the activity of the defensemen, like in Game One, a lot of shots were from the point, like the. Tampa was stationary. Their guys would get their defense would get the, the puck at the blue line, and they bomb it in on net and, and take their chances. Game games two and three, that's not been the case. And also, there's been a way greater degree of of high rolls, like high movement by the forwards, where they're coming out across the top of the circles and they're coming out to the blue line, and they're and they're making those wingers, which I used to be one. You're like, okay, am I going to step down into the seam and take you know Kucherov cutting through here, or am I going to hang on with my point man? And then my point man's going somewhere. I think willingness to exploit the top half of the offensive zone by the forwards has opened up so much of the room to make passes into the slot. And it's, it's been really well done. It's been really um, well executed. Um, and it's not, you know, it's, we're talking about the first line primarily, but even, you know, you see the third line, you know, they get pucks in the middle of the ice like that. Theirs is mostly born off four checks and turnovers, not so much rush plays or controlled cycles, but you know, they've also done a better job of moving around the offensive zone to create the chances that they want to take. Well, the thing is, like, I think for Tampa Bay, there was certainly, uh, you know, the easy thing to do is just point to the rest or how quick the turnaround was from the end of the Eastern Conference final to game one of, the, of this of this series. But I think part of it was also just kind of a recalibration where the Stars and the Islanders both uh, do a lot of things similarly and have great defensive results to match. But I think especially with how the Stars sometimes play when they are firing on all cylinders, when they are getting the puck in and forechecking and, and Rupe Hints and others are just tenaciously winning puck battles. I think there was like a bit of a speed element there to sort of recalibrate and, and, and it's helped in that regard. But I guess, you know, because the Lightning, no matter what, they've certainly made adjustments, especially on the power play where, you know, they moved Sergeyev off of that basically left flank shooter spot and put Palat there and, and it opens up some, some easy goals for them in that regard. But Beyond just those little kind of adjustments, X's and O's, the Lightning will ultimately sort of unapologetically play their game no matter what. And they should because it's led, you know, it's gotten them this far and they've had such great results and they have the horses to do it. With this Stars team, they have that bread and butter of theirs defensively, but we've also seen three different approaches depending on their opponent where they played Calgary differently than they played Colorado, than they played Vegas. And for me, heading into this Mm -hmm. series, I was so curious to see how they would choose to attack or defend or however you want to phrase it, the lightning, because it's a very tricky proposition to get into that sort of track meet back and forth with them because you probably don't have the firepower to match them. But the problem with that for the stars is 
most of their easy offense does come from that transition game where they've done such a good job this postseason and credit to to Rick Bonus for allowing guys like Jamie Oleksiak and Joel Hanley and and obviously John mm-hmm. Klingberg to just activate and become that fourth guy in the offensive zone where I mean, how many times have we seen in this postseason where Jamie Oleksiak has randomly been right in front of the net in the offensive zone and you're wondering, what the hell is he doing down there? And I'm sure the opposing defense is also wondering what he's doing down there. And then he scores a nice goal. But so for the stars, how do you sort of find that balance or decide how you want to play this lightning team? Because I don't think there's necessarily a right answer, just a matter of kind of what you're comfortable with. Yeah, exactly. Okay, first off on Alexiak, you're, he makes me laugh every game because it's about three times a game. I'm like, you're not good enough to be trying that. And, but he does. And he's got the, like, you shouldn't be pinching down there. You shouldn't find yourself on the lip of the crease or on a breakaway. Like, what are you doing up there? But he's got this kind of, you know, you would joke like misplaced confidence in his ability to, to do whatever he wants out there. And that comes from the coaching staff and, and support from underneath. But you're, you're exactly right. He gets himself in the spots you wouldn't expect a guy with his style and his history to get into, but uh, it's worked for him clearly. You know, what Dallas can do to try to, to try to counteract what, you know, Tampa's doing. I think it's, it's twofold. I mean, I think you saw in game one, they first attempt was we want to forecheck you. And I thought they did a really good job forechecking the heck out of uh, Tampa in game one. Like the, the, the three forwards, not really with active defense and pinching, but just the, 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 the tenaciousness of the three forwards and the speed that they were closing down gaps. And, and I don't think Tampa was ready to kind of deal with all these passes they thought would be open. These lanes that would be there were getting tipped and turned over. And, and that was allowing Dallas to kind of reload and reset and attack again, um, even if it's just within the offensive zone and not a full counter from the neutral zone. Tampa, I thought, made the adjustment to that by saying, if we don't like a play, we are just going to flip it in the neutral zone. They went hunting field position football style in game two. I don't know if you saw it, but I thought they every time they, they weren't sure of themselves in their own end, out to the far blue line. They were just moving the battle out of their own end and further down the ice. And so I, I thought that was an interesting decision. I would have maybe thought you might pass it out of there and try to create mm-hmm. rush chances. But they're like, no, no, we're going to flip it out. We'll trust our neutral zone. And we're going to trust that they can't break us down if we don't give it to them. Right. Well, and, I- and, it's, and it's worked. And that's what's happened. They haven't given them cheapy turnovers, you know, bad decisions, you know, three-on-threes, trying to make something happen with a guy jumping, and all of a sudden it's a two-on-one, and Rope Ince and Garyanov are taken off, and you can't catch them. Tampa's really limited that. So if, if you can't get them on the forecheck, and you can't get them, you know, once they have in the offensive zone, then you've got to do a really good job of trying to turn them over the, at your own blue line. Mm-hmm. When Tampa has the puck and they're, they're, they're trying to attack off the rush and, and possessing it in, whether it's you know good gaps, good sticks, good back pressure, that's where I think Tampa or Dallas have to try to turn pucks over and let themselves go the other way. Now, whether they can, whether Tampa will become undisciplined and try to create plays that aren't there, um, I'm not so sure. This Tampa team feels like they might be willing to just kind of chip it in for the most part and, and go get it and not give up those easy ones. But that's where I think Dallas has to try to get better. But in some ways, it's not always in their hands. Some parts might be in what Tampa is willing to give them. Yeah, I mean, you totally saw it in game one. I think the this Lightning team, and especially defensemen, are, are kind of programmed or wired to try and make that, that skill play, right? And kind of make... Uh, yeah. that 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 um, higher leverage or tougher play and, and they were kind of getting eaten alive in that and so that's a really good adjustment and a really good point by you I think for 
Dallas, like we saw so much in, in, uh, you know, to an extent for sure against Colorado, but especially against Vegas where they were opportunistically, um, turning the puck over either the blue line or limiting, um, how long Vegas was cycling the offensive zone. So they still had the fresh legs to quickly counterattack on the rush and, and all of a sudden get a potential right. three on two if Vegas was trapped down low. These past two games, especially with that top line out there for Tampa Bay, when you've got like, it's been really interesting watching these broadcasts on both Sportsnet and, and on NBC where all of a sudden with the player tracking stuff, they've got these, uh, tickers coming up where it's like, Oh, um, Jamie Oleksiak has been out there for a two minute shift already. And it's, it feels like we've been seeing a lot of that where Tampa Bay is keeping him in there. So even when Dallas does eventually get yeah. the puck, they basically, all they can do is kind of get it out to, to neutral, to the neutral zone and quickly change, uh, while they still can. And so that's been really interesting to see how they just had no answer for, for that Tampa Bay cycle game, ironically enough. Yeah. I call that the spin cycle mm-hmm. where you kind of get stuck playing your own end. And you can just kind of get it out, and then you change, and then they come back at you, and the next line gets in there and does the same thing, and you never really find your way to the offensive zone with energy. And, I mean, if you think about a lot of Dallas's top players, right, um, Joe Pavelski and, you know, Ben and Sagan and Radulov, those are guys who are not necessarily young and super quick, like guys that I would not like to – I don't think they can attack after 45 seconds. Like they got to go and they got to go early in their shift. Yep. Carry on off against they're younger. They got the fresher. They got those kind of legs that, you know, 45 seconds in, I'll put them in a foot race, but I'm not putting Joe Pavelski in a foot race 45 seconds into a shift. He's not going to ever win it. Neither is Corey Perry. Neither is Radulov. Neither is Ben and Sagan. I'm not sure if he's a hundred percent healthy team. I mean, he's, he looks like he is slow to the spots he needs to get to, to score. And so, that will be a, will be a problem. That quicker strike offense that they're looking to create, um, they're having trouble. They're having trouble getting the loose pucks they need to to get up the ice. So um, you know, but the, that the one thing that Dallas has shown, and I do believe this, that they are resilient, and I think they do believe that if they stick with it, they will be fine or certainly better off than Game Three. And I think they'll get back to playing better and more organized in their own end. And I wouldn't be surprised if Rick Bonus tries to push his entire unit further up the ice. Hmm. Like, try to engage Tampa further up the ice. I can, I can hear his – Bones coached me for like five years, right? <laughs> so I know his voice very well in, from when I was in Arizona. And I can hear him saying, Tighter, get up, get up. I can hear him from the press box or where I'm sitting. I can hear him yelling at his guys. He wants his guys to gap up and not – let Tampa even get the red line. Like try to create some sort of challenge in those areas on the ice where if you are successful, something positive will happen to you. If it happens behind your own goal line, well then you got two hundred feet and at least four guys to go through. That's not ideal. If you can happen at the red line or your own blue line, you give yourself a better chance. So I, I imagine they will try to do that in game four. Yeah, I was gonna ask you, that was one of your next questions, sort of what the uh, adjustment would be if you if you were running the stars team because I think, um, you know, certainly if they if they push the envelope and get more aggressive, it's going to potentially lead to more stuff coming back the other way. That's sort of the trade off when you play that yep. way. And and 
Tampa is skilled enough where they can certainly make you pay. But I think it's not really a palatable option for me uh, if I was running the Stars team to to sort of sit back and double down on this because what we've seen from these past two games is that Tampa is just too good. And, and if you give them that extra space on the ice, they will take advantage of it. And so I think you're right. Like it could lead to disastrous results and they could lose 7-1 if they play that way. But I don't think that they're going to win ultimately uh, playing this uh, sort of more laid back conservative style. So it's interesting that you say that. And, and, and like at some point, like, let's be honest, you're going to have to trust your goalie to be good. Right. And while we love the story of Anton Hudobin and, and, you know, he, he stops like all the shots he's supposed to, um, you know, the last whatever, four, five, six periods, it's not been yeah, as good. And he's going to have to be really good if he wants to try to help his team beat Tampa. So, um, you know, that, that's the reality. Tampa's a, uh, Tampa's probably, you know, they're a better team in many ways than, than, than Dallas. Like, who's got the best? goalie. I mean, Tampa's got the better goalie. Who's got the best defenseman? As great as Haskinen is, and I love Haskinen. Mm, I love yeah. him. Um, you know, he's he's probably not as good as Victor Hedman. Not just yet. Um, you know, who's got the best forwards? I mean, t- Tampa has the two best forwards. So, you know, the, it's going to be a tough challenge for Dallas, but I, I think, you know, they're, they're going to give it, and the other thing that they need to do, and this is not, you know, a real X's and O's thing, is like you can't be taking penalties the way they take penalties. And if your strength is four forward lines that all kind of play the same, that are relentless and can play with pace. And we have, you know, three games and four nights coming up. Let yourself play five on five. Give yourself your best chance. Don't let their skilled players see open ice and free chances and, and puck touches that make them feel comfortable. And they're not, you know, Rick Bonus has talked about it. Players have talked about it. These are not, I'm hoping you to stop an empty net goal or a breakaway. It's, you know, I'm, I'm taking a bad angle. I'm tripping you. I'm hooking you. I'm, you know, I'm interfering with you where I shouldn't. That will give them a chance to kind of stick with their system. The more guys on the ice, the more five on five, the better chance Dallas is going to have. Yeah, and I certainly don't want to, um, you know, proclaim uh, this series over because, as we've seen, as you mentioned, like they are a resilient group, and and they've been through this with you know, especially the Avs series, but even against the Knights where it's like the other team is probably more skilled and has more firepower and more talent, but uh, they're doing something right and they have a system in place. And and for as sort of a, a as a visit, like visually apparent uh, disparity in terms of skill as it's been the past couple of games for the series, like the expected goals, the high danger chances, they're all still there. Like it, it's, it's, it's beyond just that disastrous second period last night uh, in game three for the most part like there's been uh, sequences back and forth that have been lopsided on either end of the ice but it's been a pretty competitive series so I, I think you don't want to completely just throw everything out the window and, and try to try to panic but this is obviously the point in time where you do need to make those adjustments if you see them yeah I wonder uh, and you you know maybe some of the expected goals are taken in like score effects but like both teams seem pretty comfortable with the lead. And when Dallas got up, you know, in the first game, they just, they just sat back and did nothing. And when Tampa got up in game two and in game three, you know, they sat back and did nothing. The games never really felt close enough for both teams to continue to play the same way for the full 60 minutes. One team has been in the lead enough where they think that they're going to be able to milk it all the way home. And they have. And so I'll be curious to see, you know, while so many of the stats, you know, feel quite similar, yeah, how much of that is related to you know Dallas creating stuff maybe after Tampa's jumped up the lead in games two and three um, and, and, and evening up some of those numbers. Um, we'll see what happens if they play a close game the whole time and and, and can Dallas generate um, 
you know, enough enough chances. I think that's really going to be the bottom line. Can they generate enough chances? Because it seems, you know, almost inevitable, especially with that first line, that Tampa will get there. Well, the only time we really saw for an extended period of time uh, in a high leverage moment where both teams were kind of going for it was that third period, I thought, in uh, in game two, where... Um, you know, both teams are certainly kind of trading chances and, and Dallas was down two goals and then they got that beautiful assist by Klingberg to bring them within one. And then, uh, you know, Blake Coleman was offside, but it felt like both teams were kind of going for it and trading back and forth and it felt very competitive and it felt very evenly matched, I got to say. So I, I don't know. It's, it's going to be really interesting to see, um, what they do here. I, I don't know. Like what, is there any other sort of, uh, matchups or X factors that, that you've been noticing in the series? It feels like we've been talking about, uh, point Kucherov and Platt so much but it's yeah. because it's the freshest thing on our mind where the past two games they basically haven't left the offensive zone so it's kind of hard not to talk about them yeah for sure but a couple guys stood at one okay john klingberg when he has the puck is just a treat hmm. just, like to watch and i imagine to play with like he would be a guy i would have loved because like you know what nothing better than a defenseman who you can trust like you'll shake the first four checker I don't have to, I, I can worry about getting open and, and I'm not going to be worried about you turning it over against the first guy. I, I think he, his patience, and maybe because he plays for Dallas, right shot, but remember Sergei Zuboff, like he would just outweight you and bring you in and then just wait, wait for you to turn away and then just go the other way. And I see some of that in Klingberg with some happier feet going forward um, and, and great patience with the puck. So I, I think he's been a standout and, and a guy that, you know, can tip the scales when he, is able to you know jump up on the rush and there is a turnover that they can they can go with and 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 the decisions he makes the pucks are usually so clean and offensively really fun to watch so i i think he's a guy that um when you play against them like you gotta skate right through him you can't mm. get close to him and turn away and get thinking about defense or try to pick the puck off on a, in the air you, like you have to just go right through the middle of his chest because otherwise he's gonna make you look silly and even if you try to do that it might not work um, I think he's been really, really good. Uh, but on the flip side, Miro Haskinen is, is, is piling up, you know, whatever, yeah, 20, 24 points now or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know we had the one really bad giveaway. Yeah, are we counting that to his assist three. total? Yeah, well, pad, pad the stats, man, pad the stats. <laughs> he's a threat at both ends of the ice. Yep. Um, I, I think he hasn't been, like, I know he scored a goal, but he hasn't been quite as, noticeable with his legs yep. as he was previously. And then Rick Bonus touched a little bit, maybe his little fatigue of the grind and being a focus and taking the hits and all the rest of it. But he's one guy that, you know, if he can catch his second wind here for the tail end of the final, that could be really important because we know how good he is. Uh, you know, he's already one of the best defensemen in the world, um, but he hasn't had the kind of, and I know, I, I understand he's more subtle than maybe Klingberg, you know, like right. maybe not quite the highlight real stuff, like just he kills you with a thousand solid plays in a row. Uh, but just he hasn't connected quite as often on some of those solid plays as he was previously in the playoffs. No, you're you're right. I mean, it is important to remember he's 21 years old and he's uh, and he's human and he's playing against the best that. team in the I league. Don't but you're 21. No, you're listen. You're right. Listen, you're in the final. Yep. You're playing 27 minutes. You got 24 points. No one was saying you're 21 and you got 20 points after the, you know, whatever, the last round. So, like, 21, 31, 41, whatever. Like, you are what you are. He is really good, and they play him to be really good. And, uh, like, I don't think he's overwhelmed or nervous or anything like that. I think he's just, you know, he may be a little bit tired. Um, they, they play these games very, you know, every other day and then some. 
But uh, yeah, like he can just, and it goes both ways. Like not just jumping up, but like if he can get a little bit tighter in his, you know, in his gap closures and and his, his sealing off cycles, he plays against Kucherov in point. If he can do a little better job there, then we're not talking about them being in the offensive zone the whole time. And Dallas does a little bit more with it, so it's a it's a lot on anyone's plate, whatever his age is. But <laughs> you know, he's capable of it, and that's why we kind of look for it from him. It's interesting that you brought up Klingberg. I think he's uh, one of the most polarizing players I've ever seen on, on Twitter, just the way he's discussed. Like, I don't think there's anyone that has no opinion on John Klingberg. <laughs> it's either people that love him and think that he should be uh, in Norris consideration or people who just think he's an absolute bum and, and, can't, and can't do anything. And it's, it's, it's so bizarre to me because, I mean, I get it. Like, it, it's such a, a human element sort of where when he makes a mistake, especially defensively, he gets turnstiled or he looks really bad. And it's very easy to kind of laugh mm-hmm. at it and be like, haha, this guy's not an actual defenseman. But he does so much subtle stuff with the puck with those breakouts. You're, it's funny that you're mentioning kind of taking the body and, and going through him because Patrick Maroon tried to, um, on a forecheck, just go lead with his stick and he got sort of embarrassed and, and, and deked out of his skates there. And, and so the puck skills from him are just so through the roof. It's just always bizarre to me to see the discourse about John Klingberg how uh, negatively he's thought about it in, in some circles. But I guess, you know, with guys like him, it's it's, it's that to a lesser degree, obviously, because I don't think the, the highs are nearly as high. But back during the heydays of Eric Carlson, you'd have this sort of pushback of like, oh, look at these mistakes he made. And it's like, well, you take the good with the bad, because if he makes yeah. five awesome plays, it's sort of it's a net positive compared to the one negative play that sticks in your mind and makes you kind of wish that he had done something better. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Like, and I would be able to say amazing, but you got defensemen who will do nothing but kind of shoot the puck off the glass and out of the zone, and and they'll do it three times and they'll change, and and, and you know they'll cross check someone in the back, and and fans love them. Like, ah, we need more guys like that. He never. I'm like, he never makes a mistake, but like, mm, you're never going to score a goal on the ice either. Yep. And like when you go out there on the ice with guys like that, you're like, okay, you're just doing laps. You're just kind of like doing, not even having a puck on the ice. So, um, you know, there's a time and place for everything. You need to understand score and the time of the game and who you're out there against and all those different things which, which Klingberg does quite well um, and when you make enough good plays occasionally one will go bad and, and over the over the course of a season you'll live with that because the bad outweighs the good by a considerable margin um, you know if the guys you worry about is when the, the you know the good is not as often as the bad that's when you're like hang on we might have to reevaluate who you think you are as a player because you can't make plays like that Maybe you do have to dumb it down a little bit, but that's not the conversation with Klingberg. Um, so I, I don't know how polarizing he is. All I know is I like watching him, and I think if I was playing, I would really like to play with him. Yeah. I mean, listen, Iskanen's their, their best defenseman, and he's their most important skater, yeah. but um, yeah. Klingberg is a, is their engine in, in some ways, where when he's flying around like he was in that third period when they were trying to make a comeback in Game 2, they're just a completely different team. And it feels like they actually have like a dynamic element to their game with the puck. And then when he's not doing it, it's it's very apparent how uh, how kind of an uphill battle it is for them just to generate any sort of offense. But I'll give you I'll give you a couple X factors that you uh, that you didn't mention. So I'll, I'll go with them here. And it's it's that Yanni Gord, Blake Coleman, Barkley Goodrow line because um, you know when they made those trades, I think they were thinking this is going to be a nice defensive third line for us when they were kind of mapping out their right. depth chart. And then ever since Stamkos went out, and uh, we can get to Stamkos a little bit here as well. It's weird that we're 40 minutes into the show and we haven't really talked about him, but um, they've only gone four or five on five goals from that Alex Kalor and Tyler Johnson line all yeah, season, quiet. and they've been quiet, and it hasn't really mattered because 
that other line, which is now basically their second line, is been so good. I mean, the underlying numbers are, are through the roof. They're up 11-5 with them on the ice. They're like 58% of the shots. I mean, it's ridiculous what they're doing. And beyond that, beyond the 5-on-5 production, you've got Coleman and Goodrow out there both as their top penalty killers. It was really interesting to me to yep. see. It's very telling. And, and you know this as a player. Like coaches, there's a lot of coach speak and, and coaches can say a lot in the media, but there's sort of the way they use players and deploy them, especially in high leverage moments, speaks volumes about what they actually think of the guys they have. And at the end of that yeah. game too, with one minute left, they were trying to kind of salt away the clock and Barkley Goodrow was out there with, I think it was Sorelli and Kalorn, and then they loaded up Hedman and McDonough as a super pair defensively. And he was out there and, and he got the job done. And so it's been really interesting watching these guys play because I know that at the deadline, a lot was made of the price they paid and how much draft capital the Lightning gave up for them. But given the context of sort of the financial uh, situation they're in as a team, how it opens their window up again for next year, and we can talk more about that as well, but just on the ice, the impact they've had, um, it's like a home run, just slam dunk situation where Juliet Brisois identified a clear need on their roster and brought in two guys that fit perfectly. And, and I think even in his wildest dreams, he couldn't have really seen this sort of impact happening this postseason. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. Now I'll throw some, 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 my thoughts on those guys. Okay. One, you know, a lot of people talk about this newfound identity, this grit that, that Tampa has. They went out and got gritty players and Blake Coleman and Barkley Goudreau are that. Grit in and of itself does not kind of ever make a player good. Right. It's when you combine grit with other skills. Now, grit, grit is a skill, and people who watch me play would say, I could have used more of it. It's <laughs> no question. But I, I think, you know, you can't get so hung up on, like, any, any guy who kind of runs into people and is kind of grimy and talks a little bit, whatever. Like, it's not just that. It's, you know, the defensive awareness of Barkley Goudreau. It's the speed of, like, Coleman. It's the ability to produce and finish on occasion. It's, it's the, you know, their understanding of the game. Like, there are other parts to their package that go along nicely with the grit, which make them really good for each other and for the team and for the moment. So there's that. The other part of it is, you know, and I don't want to diminish their impacts, but, like, Victor Hedman, if you're on the ice in any capacity with Victor Hedman, and they <laughs> often are because they check the other team's best line, like, everything and everybody looks better when 7-7 is alongside of them. Everybody, even good players like these guys are. And everyone's numbers get a boost by being anywhere remotely near Victor Hebben when he's on the ice. There's that. And the other part of it, which, you know, there was moments in my career where I, I was, you know, I, I played in a checking role. And in some ways, I kind of liked it because you knew that if you did a good job, you could get chances because most good offensive players are not as concerned playing defense. They're kind of like, you know what? You can have a chance because I'm going to get a chance and, and I'm better at scoring them than you. So we'll trade. If we end up with 10 each in the game, we probably get two and you get one and we're happy. And so there's this element of like, if you do the, you know, you play them hard and you are physical and you're responsible and you do the right things against the top players in many ways, you will get better chances than you would against a third line right. who are, you know, more inclined to think defense first. So you put all that together and Yanni Gord rediscovering, you know, his rookie form. I don't know if it's the contract he's feeling some pressure to live up to, but you know, I think he, he adds the element of skill, you know, kind of making plays in and around the net with those guys. Um, and it's been, and it's been a perfect fit. And, and you know, it's, it's always easy. And here they are in the final up to one to say, you know, what a brilliant, because I, I was the one like, yeah, Barkley Gaudreau, first rounder. 
that's a lot. That's a yeah. lot. I mean, you know, good player. And even Blake Coleman, and I think Blake Coleman is signed for another year, so that makes him even more valuable because they, they want guys that they can afford. Um, but there's, there's no question because they are the third line, but they're kind of getting played like the second line. Right. You know, like they, they love Sorelli and, and Coop loves Killorn, but, you know, they, they start every period. They get big matchups. Their minutes are their five-on-five minutes, I would almost imagine, would be as much or more than that second line. I don't have it in front of me. But, um, you know, they trust them in, uh, implicitly. They, they, they play, as you mentioned, all these high-leverage situations, and understandably so. Um, they have been huge difference makers for Tampa, for sure, especially with Stamkos out and that second line being as quiet as, as it has been. Uh, five on five. Well, it feels like whenever Cooper needs, like it's like there's like a, a stagnant moment in the game where Tampa has had three or four bad shifts in a row. He kind of sends those guys out there and they make something happen. And it's really important that you mention uh, sort of the grit component of it, but also, uh, you know, when you're going up against other teams, top guys and how they'll give you chances, the sort of one uh, underlying assumption there is that you are able to actually go and get the puck yourself. Otherwise you're going to just be trapped in your defensive zone at all times uh, and kind of getting suffocated. And so in this case, like when you have Gord and and Coleman and even Goodrow to an extent, like, they're just so good with their legs at winning battles and chasing down the puck. And then, as we saw with Coleman with that one goal, he scored that uh, in the Islander series where, you know, it was kind of this like loose puck in front of Arlamov and he chased it down and then in tight made this move with his hands to actually capitalize on it. They have the requisite skill as well to certainly take advantage. So, um, yeah, one thing I will say about, you know, there was a lot of sticker shock and this was something that I was pushing back at a lot at deadline because people were like, wow. They give up two first round picks if you include, uh, you know, the former first round pick Nolan Foot for for Coleman. They gave up a first for Goodrow, and it's like, well, really, they gave up the thirtieth or thirty first overall pick <laughs> to get not this. all first rounders are created equal. Yeah, but also they get back San Jose's third, and that it's like this probably going to be like the sixty fifth pick or whatever. And knowing yeah. Tampa Bay, like they're probably more likely to get a quality player at sixty five than most teams are at thirty one. <laughs> so I'm not too worried about that. And and the other door it opens up for them is both. Goodrow and Coleman are under contract next year for a combined 2.75, I believe. And so if you have to, you know, because they're going to have to pay Sarani and Sergachev, they're probably going to have to move at least two of those medium range contracts. And I think based on the way things have been going, it looks like it'll probably be Coleman and Johnson because I think Palat and Gord have sort of played their way into almost untradeable territory based on this postseason. All of a sudden, you're looking at that scenario where it's like, wow, we have this Gord, Coleman, Goodrow line, which is basically our second line under contract next season for very reasonable salaries. So it was kind of a double whammy for Julian Brisewell there. So I just wanted to to kind of reiterate that because I know there's a lot of uh, people kind of laughing at, at how many sort of quote-unquote first-round picks were traded for those two guys. Yeah, I, I mean, I was one like, oh, first-rounder. But, I mean, when you understand the finances, when you when you forecast forward and they know Sergeyev and Sorelli are coming up, and the Vasilevsky's extension kick in next year too, maybe. Uh, like they need they need more money, so they need guys who are signed to affordable deals at extra value beyond what they just bring as, as players. So yeah, those guys have been those guys have been um, full value. They, they, they've looked great and, and given Breezeball and Tampa exactly what they were hoping. Um, Another one like you know shout out this one line. I thought so in, in game three. You talk about momentum. They put that line out there, so you can check it. Go to two thirty five on the clock in the first period left. Tampa is, is is reeling. It's been all Dallas for about 12 minutes. And there's a neutral zone face-off, and John Cooper puts out Paquette, Maroon, and Kalorn. Now, I took notice of it because I'm like, where's 
Stamkos. So I was trying to track where he was going back on the ice. And that line went out there and got the puck in the offensive zone and started banging around and re-energized the forecheck. And eventually they drew a penalty right at that at the end of the period, building off of that. And I thought like it was out and out. It was an out of sequence change, and it was a line that wasn't natural fit. And I thought it was another kind of good feel move by Cooper. Just like we need, like sometimes you need just like a little energy, a little physicality, even if they don't do a ton, like creating an actual chance, hmm. but just maybe hmm. tilting the ice a little bit more. And 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 I thought that was uh, something well done by John Cooper. All right, we're gonna we're gonna leave on this one final question for you, and it's probably the toughest one I've given you so far. Uh, let's project forward and say that Tampa Bay will win this series in in however many games, as it's looking like it'll be the mm-hmm. case right now. And we don't want to jinx it, and I don't want this to come back to bite us because we do think that the Dallas Stars are a very good team with at least one big push left in them here. Um, mm-hmm. What's your consmite pick? Because this is one of those situations where. It's kind of in in the eye of the beholder. It's also like it's very based on sort of subjectivity. I, I really don't think there is. I know you're probably going to lean Hedman based on what you were just saying when I was talking about that second line, but I don't think mm-hmm. there's based on the numbers and based on just kind of watching it. Like I, there's so many different cases to be made. Well, I think there's three, and I'm not including Vasilevsky, which is amazing to say because yeah. he's got a 9.29 save percentage, leads the league in goals saved above expected, and and no other Tampa Bay goalie has made an appearance this postseason, which is probably the most remarkable stat. Um, but between Hedman, Kucherov, and Point, how are you leading in terms of sort of trying to strip the parts away from each other and determine ultimately which one is the engine, which one is moving the needle the most? And I know acknowledging it's really tough to do so because they spend so much time kind of playing off of each other. Yeah, you're right. And I'll say I had Vasilevsky as my favorite after two rounds. Right. Uh, so, you know, like he, like he deserves consideration. He's not going to win it, but he deserves consideration if this wraps up in five or six or whatever in Tampa's favor. So, I mean, I, I guess, you know, point and Kucherov are, you know, Kucherov setting records for most points. He's getting close to 30 on the, on the postseason. You know, he's, he's getting to some rarefied air. And, you know, you're looking at offense, which is hardest to come by in the playoffs, and he's doing it better than anyone else. And, you know, he's shown more discipline. He's not getting as frustrated, not quite as temperamental as he was even last year. All signs that, you know, really good case. Braden Point, I think even Nikita Kucherov would say, is the most important forward on Tampa. Like, he does so much for them, and Kucherov couldn't do what he does without Point. Point has scored more goals. He's right there in points with them. Um and he's done it well, probably not, Kucherov might not be 100%, but point we know is not 100% either. And you saw what happened when he didn't play against the Islanders. They did not win. When he played, they won. So, you know, pretty easy case for him. So I lead all that up to saying my winner's back, Victor Hedman. I mean, he's got, what, Paul Coffey and Brian Leach ahead of him right now on goal scored in a playoff in the history of the NHL. Those are two pretty good players on pretty good teams that won Stanley Cups. But he's got double digits there. Um, you know, he plays with Kucherov a point. He plays in the power play, plays in the, like he plays everything yep. and does every, you know, and, and makes everyone better, shuts down the opposition's best players, helps his own offense go. And maybe more than anything, Dim. So who, who does he always, who does he play with? Like he's played with everyone. Luke Shen. He's played with Zach Bogosian. Mm-hmm. He's played with Jan Ruta. Yep. He's played with Kevin Shattenkirk. Occasionally they mix in McDonough or Sergeyev, but not very often. And he has made, those first four players, like Luke Shen was almost out of the league. Bogosian was on waivers, almost out of the league. Shakur was a buyout and, you know, trying to find his feet. Ruta has bounced around a little bit, you know, far from an elite-level defender. And when he's on the ice with any of those guys, good things happen for Tampa. 
plus the offense, and you know the, the, the statistical case that goes along with it. I, I just think he's such an imposing figure in every game, in its outcome, and what Tampa's doing. That even with the gaudy offensive numbers of Kucherov and Point, I'd have to give it to Hedman. Yeah, I think uh, it certainly seems like the uh, the common uh, belief is that it is leaning that way, and, and certainly the totality of. Well, his I don't numbers. want to be common. I want to be right. You well, obviously don't like it. No, no. I think it's <laughs> listen. Okay, I'm going to give you the pro Hedman argument here because there's a lot of uh, points to be made in his favor. I mean, playing nearly 28 minutes a night, and even if you strip that crazy 50 plus minute game in uh, in the marathon OT versus Columbus, it's still over 26 a night. Ten goals point per game i think my favorite stat of all this postseason and i have brought it up on twitter a couple times and i will keep doing so until the playoffs are done he's played 400 minutes of five on five since the start of round one tampa bay's outscoring teams 24 to 6 in those five on five minutes Hedman himself has six five on five goals so he's basically matched what everyone else he's played against combined and then he's basically giving tampa bay an extra 18 goal cushion there for everyone else to to jump in on the fun so you're right i mean those numbers themselves uh they speak for themselves it's it's quite a performance he does have kind of that calming presence of he just gets out there and it's kind of like a good point guard where you can just give him the puck and he'll sort of settle things down and you need that over the course of a a game and a series and and a postseason run i think like for me between kucherov and point and maybe they sort of do kind of cancel themselves out in a way where it just leaves you with headman it, it's really tough because on the one hand i don't think i've enjoyed watching a player play more this postseason than brain point when he's been healthy in the sense that he's right up there with i guess matt barzala sort of the most impactful transition player we've seen the speed and skill is obvious but i think what i've been blown away with most is, is sort of that power game of his where despite his frame uh he's kind of got that crosby-esque ability to get low yeah. And yeah. stick his butt out and kind of use his arm to, uh, to block guys trying to take the puck from him and get to wherever he wants on the ice and just absorb contact and people bounce off of him and he still makes plays. And it's been really, uh, really fun to watch. So you got to give points some love there for Kucherov. Part of it maybe just kind of bit, uh, sort of sweet for me because the conversation about him after last year's sweep was so idiotic. I thought when he won all the individual awards and then didn't show up and got suspended and everyone's like, Oh, what a regular season player can't get it done when it matters most. And he's been with the puck, just, I, I think otherworldly this, this, uh, this postseason, especially as this series gone along, I thought game two, and I know you did a little video about this that I was watching where his ability to just sort of orchestrate the entire Tampa Bay offense and just pick apart Dallas's structure with his passing was amazing where he had, he's had three primary assists the past two games. He easily could have had five or six of his players converted on some of those opportunities. So I don't know. It's, it's basically, this is why Tampa Bay is very good because they have three awesome, very deserving candidates, not to mention their goalie, but it's such a fascinating debate for me because I don't think there is a right answer. I think it is just a matter of sort of what you prefer and what you value the most. Yeah, and, you know, we've had in years past, like, you know, Phil Kessel could have won it, but, like, you know, there was kind of like the romantic Crosby needs to win it. Like, right. I, I don't know if any of these guys kind of have that, you know, we got to give it to Hedman because he deserves, you know, like, I don't know if anyone has any kind of sentimental reason to vote for them other than you think they're the most important person in the win if Tampa wins it. So uh, I don't know, you know, I know the media kind of puts in their ballots in, like, second period of the deciding game or something like that. Um, so I, I don't I don't think we'll see anything but kind of, rational voting I don't, that should be all that matters in this one and there, and there is no wrong decision um, and I hate voting for defensive over forwards for anything but <laughs> um, you know and who knows that Vic, you know 
Kucherov could go and get six points tomorrow night. I mean, like it's not out of the question. So, so, so we'll see how the rest of the series plays out. But they've all been just tremendous. Yeah. Is there anything do you want to do? You want to touch on Stamkos at all, or I don't know, like what is there to say at this point? Well, two more things. One more thought, yeah. real quick. Yeah. We talked about the two fastest players in the series are Hintz and Garyanov. Mm-hmm. Like I love watching these guys skate to the neutral zone, and like when they find open ice, there's not a lot of it. But when they find it, like Tampa has problem with those two players specifically. Yep because of the pace and trying to find ways to implement more spots for them to skate would be good for Dallas. So just when you, when you're watching the game live, you're like, Hey, those guys are moving at a different speed than anybody else. Even Braden point, who's a great skater. Um, you know, Victor Hedman who's kind of long and, and, and smooth. Even he is not as fast as those two. So that's something to watch. As far as Sam goes, goes, um, I've watched a thousand games since I've retired. I don't get excited about, you know, just about anything. I got a little buzz when he came out for warm up. I'm not gonna lie to you. I'm like, this is pretty cool. You know, wheeling around, buckets off, and you know, stretching it out. I'm like, you know, he's been through a lot. This bubble life is no walk in the park, and to be at it for two months and training and you know, rehabbing and skating and without ever playing, that would be no fun at all. So I was happy to see him get back. I mean, I love the kind of simple brilliance of his goal. You know, the timing, the slide, the shot, all of it. Um, but kind of left feeling bittersweet about the whole experience and that he's not able to finish. I don't think we're going to see him again in the series. I'd be really surprised if we did. Um, and, and uh, you know, his, I want his body to be right. I want him to get healthy because he's really good at scoring the puck when he is. And, and as amazing and as, as loud as that building felt with no fans in it when he scored, which was fun to hear Tampa and see the reaction of the bench to their captain back and doing what he did. You know, when he didn't play the rest of the game, you know, I kind of just felt sad that his body is not after what months and months and months of the core surgery and whatever he did in phase two you know i think it's a lower body injury like he just can't still get right for more than three minutes that's sad because i like seeing the best players play and i wish he was healthier than he is right now certainly and it was kind of devastating watching the the telecast of him kind of coming out of the dressing room late in the second period and you could just sort of see how defeated uh, he was based on what had happened over the past 15, 20 minutes or whatever. But it was good to see that he was uh, he was having a good time on the bench and, and certainly uh, Tampa Bay winning and scoring some goals helps with that regard. But he got, at least got a sort of one uh, vintage moment there with that goal. And, and you're right, I think beyond anything else, just hope... Uh, Hope he gets healthy and hope he gets back to feeling good because, uh, you know, you hate to see the best players kind of going down like that and, and not only being shells of themselves, but also struggling through it. And, and so, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's about it. I, I think that's, uh, that's a good little, uh, place to end this conversation here and, uh, put a bow on, on our talk here. So it's, it's been a fun three games. I, I've really enjoyed this series and just based on the sort of stylistic differences between the two teams and sort of the back and forth, I'm really curious to see how the next, uh, two to three games or even four games go here between these two. Yeah, and it's fun to watch a chess match because a lot of times teams like are given adjustments, but they don't really implement them very well. And so I give these teams and their coaches credit because they, they, they call for adjustments and, and the teams actually pull them off. So it should be fun to see what Rick Bonus and his coaching staff can come up with in the next couple of days as they go back-to-back for games four and five. All right, MJ, where can, uh, where can people check out? What are you doing these days while you're hanging out there bubble adjacent in Edmonton? I am with the NHL Network, so we're doing our you know pre and post hits uh, on what's going on with the T series. I'm dropping into TSN to do some stuff as well for that's hockey. Uh, still on Sirius XM every most every morning from what is it uh, ten to eleven. 
uh, CSN Radio as well, while talking to you. So I've got a full plate <laughs> of hockey coverage for the next uh, few weeks. Keeping yourself busy. All right, well, I appreciate you taking the time, considering that especially, and uh, this was a blast, man. Hopefully we'll do, do it again soon. All right, we'll talk to you. That's going to do it for another episode of the Hockeypedia Guest. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Mike Johnson for taking the time to come on the show again. Um, he's not even on the line anymore, so it's not like I'm buttering him up, but I honestly do believe that he is the gold standard when it comes to the media game and the depth of analysis he can get into and how uh, he can discuss really important stuff and make it sound uh, simple and easy to digest. And hopefully we did that on today's show and hopefully you enjoyed it. Uh, this marks uh, consecutive weeks now back to back that we've done new shows. And so hopefully this is a sign of things to come and we'll be able to keep the ball rolling here through the end of the cup final and into the off season keep delivering new podcasts for you to listen to so uh thanks to everyone that stuck with us through the dry spell and the four-month hiatus and uh hopefully we'll be rewarding your patience and your dedication to the show with uh new quality shows that you enjoy so uh one thing you can do to help us out and to keep showing that support is to go and leave a quick rating and review for the pdo cast on itunes or wherever you listen to your podcast it honestly only takes a minute or two it's really simple uh you can get as detailed with it as you want you can make an inside joke you can just leave a just leave that five-star review we really appreciate it either way you go with it it goes a long way towards helping the show and showing future sponsors and people that will want to part- partner with the pdo cast that you guys are listening that you're enjoying it and that we have a reason to keep these shows coming so thanks for your help in that regard and we'll be back um sometime next week with what looks like it'll be a wrap-up show of the playoffs and the cup final series and we'll get into all of that uh based on the outcome and then we'll have a lot of uh future fun shows planned as well i mean we're going to do another mock draft before the october 6th entry draft and then we'll do a ton of uh free agent analysis and hopefully if the past couple weeks of kind of sneaky trades that have happened uh, amongst teams that have already been eliminated are any indication this is going to be a busy and fun off season filled with lots of player movement and we'll be getting into all of it here as we always do on the pdo cast so thanks for listening here's the outro and we'll be back next week the hockey pdo cast with dimitri filipovich Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockeypdocast.